This morning's reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and can be found on page 1025 in the Church Bibles in front of you. So Luke, chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them. 
but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Thank you, Steve. I vividly remember going to the first Star Wars film, number four, wasn't it? It was, uh, came out in Tottenham Court Road, and Judith and I were wandering along, and someone just came out of the queue, because you had to queue to get into that, and, uh, and just gave us tickets. And we went in to see uh, that film. There were two things that struck me about that film, or two things I remembered. One is that I went in with a girlfriend and came out with a fiancé, and I'm still not sure quite how that happened. <laughs> it was nothing to do with me. That's, well, it's very surprising. Um, but the other thing that strikes you about that film is that introduction, isn't it? It's that sort of those words panning across the screen that are going to set the scene for everything that happens for the next, well, goodness knows how many films there have been. Um, but it's a real scene setter, isn't it, that, uh, that little opening scene. And that's what we got in front of us today. So if you've got your Bibles still open, uh, we're in Luke 1, uh, 1 to 25. It was on page 1025 of the church Bibles. Uh, and Luke's big opening isn't about a war in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, his big opener is this simple claim that everything we're going to read in his book is true. Because Luke starts off his gospel actually as many other historians did in those days, and they still do, and Wikipedia still does. You cite your sources. You say, well, where am I getting this stuff from? And that's what Luke does. Ooh, wasn't expecting him. I was expecting him. That's what Luke does in his introduction. And you can see that here. So verse 1, look at that. He says he refers to the things that have been fulfilled among us. So in other words, he's saying this is personal. This is stuff that I've experienced. He's writing about Luke and Acts, actually. This is an introduction to both. So it could have been experienced in Acts, could have been experienced in Luke. We don't know. Verse 2, he talks about uh, eyewitness testimony from servants of the word. So we presume he means the disciples there and the women who were with Jesus and so on. He's spoken to people who've given him verbal testimony. And then he also says uh, that he talks about the the written testimony, the things that have already been written. That's in verse 1, isn't it? Many have undertaken to draw up an account. So he probably had Mark's gospel then, then. He probably had other gospels he could refer to as well. So he's taken all this stuff together, and then he says, verse 3, that he's carefully investigated everything, everything from the beginning. He means he's really had the drains up on this. He's checked it all out for himself. And then the reason he's done that, look at verse 4, so that Theophilus may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. We don't know who Theophilus was, but the point is, what Luke is saying is, I want you to be sure of the facts. I want you to be sure that what I'm telling you is the absolute truth. And we know that Luke believed this himself because, of course, Luke traveled with Paul. Luke was in the shipwreck with Paul. Luke risked his life for what he wrote here. He believed it himself. And legend has it 
that he was also martyred for his faith later on. So our starting point this morning is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is true. It's based on historical fact. And that's a a great thing to hang on to, isn't it, as we move in to the, the story proper, if you like, with that introduction that everything we're seeing here and in the other gospels is true. So then Luke introduces his gospel with this, uh, this story of the announcement of John's birth. And he makes it clear that John comes, as he says in verse 17, can you see that little phrase? To make ready, to make the ready, make the people ready, I'll get this right in the end, <laughs> to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what he's doing. John is there to prepare people for the Lord. And the thing that struck me as I looked at this passage is, well, why? Why did they need preparing for the Lord Jesus? Well, it's partly because John fulfills a prophecy. Prophecy right at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi 4.5, that a prophet like Elijah will come to prepare his people for the coming of the Lord. So part of it is just a sign that this is the coming Messiah. But that still leaves you with a question, but why? Why do they need preparing? So that's what we're going to think about. And we're going to use some artwork because Luke, amongst other things, is the patron saint of painters. Around about the fourth century, everybody thought his writing was so brilliant and so descriptive uh, that he must have been an artist. So he became the patron saint of artists. So we're going to have some classical art to help us think about this topic. Now, I don't pretend to know very much about classical art, and you are at a slight disadvantage if you're listening to this online. So, (laughs) I'm just going to say who it's by and where it is in case you wanted to stop uh, and dig out the picture. So if you Google Zechariah and Gabriel, uh, and uh, this one is, and it's an awful surname, Domenico Ghirlandaio, uh, and it's painted in 1490. And it's in Florence, Fran and Martinstone. Uh, it's a fresco up there. And this is a picture that shows us what was happening in that story we've just been reading. And it'll help us actually answer this question of, well, what's the problem? So let's just look at this picture for a minute. We've got a, a grand temple-like building, haven't we? Uh, we've got Zechariah at the center. Can you see in the, in, in the red robe? Uh, and Gabriel, he's on the other side of him with the wings. That's how you know he's an angel. Uh, and then we've got the worshippers outside the temple. In this version, they can sort of see in, but they couldn't in the Bible, could they? But they're the worshippers uh, all outside, and there are some sort of ladies off to the right. And I'm going to leave that picture up just while we think about this, this topic. Gabriel says, verse 15, that John will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Can you see that? Now, the point is you don't need to bring people back to God if they're with God already, do you? The problem seems to be that the people had no time for God. They might have been outwardly respectable, but actually they were living only for themselves. I suppose nowadays you might say it was someone who you talked to who would say, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic or, or maybe I'm just not bothered with religion at all. I'm not bothered with Christianity. These are people who really don't have any time for God in their lives. 
And that may sound completely wrong related to this passage because it's full of priests and temples and stuff like that. So it doesn't seem to fit, does it? But look at verse 17. It says there, the hearts of the parents need turning to their children. It's a slightly odd phrase. But what it's trying to say is that even that most fundamental relationship is wrong. The Jewish teachers are very clear that that's the most important thing in a parent's life is to look after your children. They're saying actually the parents weren't even doing that. The parents' hearts were not turned to their children. They were thinking, presumably, of themselves. And look at the other half of verse 17. It's another difficult phrase. It describes people as disobedient who need the wisdom of the righteous. Again, it's, it's an odd phrase, but it's really saying the same thing. These are people who had no time for God's wisdom in their life. It was irrelevant. God was unnecessary. And therefore, these people have a distorted view on life because despite their religiosity, they didn't see things God's way at all. And you can see that in here. Look at verse 6. We're told in verse 6 that in God's eyes, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. And then you compare that with verse 25. I know we're skipping around, but in verse 25, where Elizabeth says that in the people's eyes, she's a disgrace. So the people are so far from God that they can't recognize godly people. Instead, they treat them as a disgrace. These people are a very long way from God. Now, we've had this picture up for a while. I don't know what you think of it. Um, I don't like it very much. And I don't think we're supposed to like it. Because if you look at it a bit more closely, it's actually telling you something rather different. So if you look at the temple, it's not really a temple at all, is it? It's a civic building or something like that. That's not a temple, and those, those sculptures uh, are to do with war, so nothing religious about those. And then you look at the people. The people outside, well, they don't really look as though they're worshipping, do they? They're not particularly interested. They're talking to each other. They're looking away. Zechariah's almost irrelevant, isn't he? He's there, but he just disappears. They're not interested in Zechariah. It's quite difficult to see Gabriel. In fact, Gabriel is partly obscured, isn't he? The, the people are sort of in front of him, blocking him away. That picture is actually spot on. It's exactly describing the situation uh, of the people in Luke chapter 1. These are people who care only for themselves with no regard to God. However good they look, their hearts are not right. And the Bible repeatedly tells us that if your heart isn't right with God, ignoring God will only end in death. That is the repeated message of the Bible. If we ignore God, our lives end in eternal death. And that was true for these people, and it's true for us now. If we don't have God at the center of our lives, then that attitude will lead to death. And that attitude, therefore, needs a solution, doesn't it? We need to be saved. And John's job, the reason John was coming, was to point us to the person who would be able to save us who can offer us that salvation, who will bring us the solution to our problem. And that brings us to another picture. So again, for those online, another awful name, this is Bonifacio Veronese, and it's painted in 1550. And what you've got here is a very different picture, isn't it? This is Gabriel talking alone with Zechariah in the temple. 
So he's sort of hovering over the altar, isn't he? I don't know why he's in blue, but there we are. Now, the thing that struck me about this picture that I found really helpful, actually, was to think about the hands. You look at the flow of the hands. One of Gabriel's hands points up to heaven. The other hand points down, and it's sort of parallel, points in the same direction of one of Zechariah's hands, isn't it? And then Zechariah's hands pointing outwards to the countryside. So you wonder, is Gabriel saying the words, verse 19? He tells Zechariah he's come from the very presence of God. And is Zechariah pointing to the countryside to showing where John will go? Well, maybe. But I think, actually, what the painter's saying is, this is who John's pointing to. This is what the message of John will all be about. I think we're not looking about a conversation about John, but it's the message that John will bring. Because John was only human, wasn't he? Born of human parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. But he's pointed to one greater than him who will follow. God's own son. And I think that's what we're seeing here. So with the hand pointing to heaven, I think we're being reminded of John 6.38, where Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And then we're reminded that Jesus will come as man. Jesus says, John, John describes Jesus as one who has come in human nature. And of course, Jesus came to the world, the world outside pointed to there. John 3:17, Jesus says about himself, God sent his son, that was himself, God sent his son into the world that it would be saved through him. So that was John's task being described here by Gabriel to point people to the Lord who would save. Just after John's born, Zechariah describes this in another way. He describes it as John giving people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. And we do need to accept that offer of forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. So John's message is going to prepare the people, but the people are going to have to respond individually to that message and accept the Lord Jesus personally. And only then are we born again. So there's a response needed. And I think we're supposed to think about the response in this picture too. Because you look at Zechariah in this picture, and he's the centerpiece, isn't he? But you think, well, what's he doing? Is he kneeling down in, in, in fear? Or is he getting up to argue? It's, it's an odd posture. He's just been told that his prayers are answered. And he's, have to have a, he's going to have a son, even in his old age. But quite what is his reaction there? Well, of course, we know what his reaction is because it's in verse 18. If you look at that, his response is, how can I be sure of this? We're past it, basically, is what he's saying. And Gabriel tells us what lies behind that answer. It's not the same sort of answer that Mary gives later on at her annunciation. What Gabriel says in verse 20 is, because you did not believe. That's behind his question. Because you did not believe. And that's the moment captured in this last picture. We've moved on a few centuries. So again, for those online, this is by a Russian artist called Alexander Ivanov. And it was painted in 1850. And uh, you get this wonderful sense, I think, don't you, of the glory of the temple all around. The incense is swirling around. And there's Zechariah facing Gabriel. And Gabriel is sort of dazzling in his brilliance, isn't he? And this is the point. 
when Zechariah says, I don't believe you. Now, how would you have felt if you were God at that point? You've waited 400 years for this moment. You've been building up to it. You've picked Zechariah as the person you're going to be the message to. You've got him alone in the temple. In goes Gabriel. This big announcement, the saviour of the world is about to come. And this miserable so-and-so says, well, I don't believe you. Wouldn't you just zap him? Wouldn't you get out your lightsaber or something? Or would you go and find someone else? It's, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because Zechariah rejects the message. Now, I don't want you to lose sight in when we talk, think about this, that you can reject the gospel and get away with it. Because when we reject Jesus, then that rejection ends in death. But what we do see in this passage is that God is patient and loving. And this is an instance of exactly that patience being shown. It's patience with someone who isn't sure. We might be unsure in our own lives. We might wobble and we doubt and we might get it wrong like Zechariah does here. But actually we're still safe if, as Zechariah does, we committed our lives to Jesus. He was, Zechariah was right with God, but he got this badly wrong. And that's exactly what this picture is illustrating, isn't it? Because actually the focus of the picture is on Zechariah, isn't it? And while you've got this wonderful glow around Gabriel and you've got this beautiful color on the floor and you've got the, the, the candles burning, Zechariah's a bit faded out, isn't he? He's shaded away. He's a little bit dull. And it looks like his robe should have much brighter colors, but somehow they're not there, are they? He's stooped and faded. He's rather a sad character. At this point, he really isn't the person he's supposed to be at all. And look at Gabriel's hand. He's reaching out, but he's not striking him, has he? It's almost a gentle gesture. And he's saying those verses in 19 and 20. I've been sent to bring you good news, but because you did not believe, you will be dumb. In fact, he was deaf and dumb until this promise. And then he says, comes true at the appointed time. It's really important, isn't it? So this was not the end of the story for Zechariah. There's no sense that this is a punishment. This is a sign for him and for the others. And actually what's intriguing is you're going to see something very similar at the other end of the gospel story in John. When you see Thomas doubt in almost exactly the same way. And in both cases there's restoration. In both cases the doubter is reassured. For Zechariah, it'll be when Gabriel's words come true when John is born later on. But that's for another story. One commentary had a lovely phrase I came across. It said, momentary doubts cloud the skies of believers. It's a nice phrase, isn't it? Momentary doubts cloud the skies of believers. And of course, John comes in the spirit of Elijah, and Elijah is famous for a huge moment of doubt and uncertainty. But there's always restoration. And it struck me, what a strange story to start start the gospel with, isn't it? To start the story with someone who doubts and messes up. But it's very reassuring, isn't it? Because Luke's gospel will call us to belief and trust in Jesus. But we start with this sense of assurance that actually, even in moments of doubt, 
we're not condemned. Isaiah 42.3 says God will not break a damaged reed or put out a dimly burning wick. And Zechariah is certainly a dimly burning wick at this point, isn't he? The Bible says we have the Holy Spirit himself who, when we doubt, testifies that we are God's children. So we will have our moments. We will have our big moments of doubt and disbelief, just as Zechariah does. But God still loves us, and we're still his children. So, three points. Let me just recap as we finish. Firstly, we're reading facts here. That is Luke's introductory. And it gives us confidence that we can rely on the truth of what we're reading, the certainty of what we read. Secondly, we've got a problem. We need to be put right with God. That was John's message. We need to repent when we need to change our minds and have a life filled with the Holy Spirit when we're put right with God through Jesus. And thirdly, although rejecting Jesus leads to death, we can be assured that when we wobble, when we're unsure, unsure, when we doubt, that God still cares for his children. Amen.